Gracious Heavenly Father, if we are trusting in the law as a means of righteousness, we will become angry today. But if we have been shown by the law that all we have is Jesus Christ, then we will be very happy today. Heavenly Father, make it clear what the function of the law does but make it clear, Father, what you have also done for us in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen. I don't usually teach uh, a Greek word because it can sound like you're showing off, but it's, a, it's an interesting word, the word for guardian or the word for the law is our guardian. It's the word pedagogos and all week my wife and I have been making jokes about it. So the RTA has fully licensed me to drive a car. Did you know that? But when I'm with my wife in the car, I feel like I'm on my learners. Um, Does anybody else have their spouse tell them how to drive at all? Yeah, yeah. So we all have schoolmasters, don't we? And uh, at different times, she calls me the, the, the pedagogos of food. Don't eat that and don't eat that. So what I'm trying to illustrate is that we know when somebody is pointing us to do things, don't we? And we know when we're being told that it's wrong. So go into that car spot. No, not that one there. Reverse there. Whatever it may be. It's kind of a harassing word, isn't it? And uh, it, we're making fun of it, but in the, in the larger sense, that's what the, the law of God will do. And isn't it good when any, everybody in the room identifies with you straight away? Geez, that makes you feel better. So we, we all have this understanding. So in our series in Galatians, we saw that, that last week the Galatians themselves, by receiving the Spirit through hearing with faith, had been justified by God, freed from the curse of the law. But what was even more amazing was that this little Galatian church were living in the fulfilment of God's promise to Abraham to bless the nations. Imagine for a moment that here we are, a small group of people today, but we are living in the fulfilment of God's blessing to Abraham. So that promise that he made to Abraham, you and I are in it. We're living in it through faith in Christ. And do you know that when, you're, when you've been blessed by God, what do you become? A blessing. And I made a joke during the week that those who are not living in the blessing are a real pain. Because they're not a blessing. Because they're living under the curse. And they're angry and they're frustrated. But when you're living in the blessing, that blessing somehow that has come to you, you just want to be a blessing to others, don't you? And so the Gospel really, when it comes to a church... It has a goal, the nations. And so when the gospel comes to a church, it then moves. But when a church doesn't exist for the gospel, it becomes like the Dead Sea. It really does. It begins to stink. And so how do you receive God's blessing? We saw that last week. You receive it simply by hearing that the only sin in the New Testament is forgiven sin. The only sin in the New Testament is forgiven sin. When you hear God's forgiveness to you in Jesus Christ, when you just hear that 
He's accepted you through Jesus Christ. When you hear that he has loved you perfectly in Jesus Christ, you believe you receive the fullness of the Spirit and all the fruit of the Spirit begins to manifest in your life. Who thinks that's too easy? Well, from day to day and week to week, we do find that just believing that message to be quite hard. Well, the false teachers were saying to really be Abraham's children, to really be a part of the blessing of Abraham, you really need to become Jewish. You need to follow the Jewish traditions. So they were putting a, a clause on top of faith in Christ. They were saying it's faith in Christ plus circumcision. And one of their arguments was really good. They used to say things like this to the Galatians, well, you know, Abraham, he got circumcised after he believed and that was a sign that he was in the covenant. Now, you Galatians, you've believed in Jesus Christ but you still haven't been circumcised. That's a, isn't that a good argument? What would that have made them feel like doing? Well, I need to get circumcised, then I'll really become one of Abraham's children. And what Paul does here is he just comes like a thunderclap from heaven and destroys that argument completely by showing that the blessing given to Abraham came long before the law was given. So in verses 15 to 18, Paul starts off by talking about two human beings who would make a covenant. So back in those days, if I wanted to make a promise to you, a covenant promise, I would speak them to you and then I would kill an animal and we'd shed the blood together and those promises remained. And if I made promises to you, they had to be kept. And Paul says you can't break that covenant. Not even a human covenant can be broken. But now he moves beyond a human covenant to a divine covenant. Now you've got, to, you've got to listen to this very carefully because it's a, it's, it's a bit tricky. God's covenant with Abraham is one way. We use the word unilateral, which is a big word. But if I say God's covenant with Abraham and his promises to Abraham are one way, do you know what I mean? It means that it's not dependent upon law, it's not dependent on human effort and it's certainly not dependent even on our response. If it was dependent on our response, would it be a promise? What would it be dependent on? Our response. And so when you start talking about God's covenant that way, you say, well, where are we in it? Well, think about it this way. God the Father made a covenant with Abraham, but he made that covenant in his son Jesus Christ, who is the offspring of Abraham. We following that? So he's made it in his son, but he's made it to his family. Who are his family? We are. Whoever belongs to Christ is Abraham's offspring. So if I said to you today, every promise that's ever been made by God is yes to you and amen to you in Jesus Christ. Go and read the promises and say, they're mine. And they're mine because God has given them to me. And I hope you have promises on your heart. Who reads the Bible and has certain promises on their heart? There are some that just stand out differently to different people. Well, that's what Paul is saying. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and he says to his offspring, 
That is meaning one person, that one person being Christ. We know that that Isaac was definitely a part of Abraham's offspring but Isaac was not the fulfilment of the promise, Christ was. So we've seen that God doesn't make a promise and then say to you, now you go out and obey my law and I'll give you that promise. Would that be a promise? Here's my promise, but go go to church every week for 30 years and then I'll give you the promise. That's not a promise, is it? And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying that it can't be by law. It just can't be. Can you hear that? It just can't be by law. It can't be by anything you do. It is simply a promise made in his son. Full stop. And the promise was this, that Abraham and his descendants would inherit the world. So, I'm looking at people here today who have been baptised into Jesus Christ. Do you know what your inheritance is? A new heavens and a new earth. You are going to inherit the entire new creation. And that's what Abraham heard. He heard that he was going to inherit the world, which includes a resurrection body. And you can't have a resurrection body without who? Jesus Christ. So really, you inherit Jesus Christ and his resurrection body. And God gave that promise to Abraham by grace and Abraham simply believed it. Now that promise was given 430 years before Moses. And Luther makes a big deal of that. He says, why does Paul mention 430 years? Because it's a long time between the promise and the law that God gave to Moses. So the law which came 430 years afterwards through Moses does not annul or change a covenant previously made by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by a promise, but God in his grace gave it to Abraham by a promise. So, here's Moses over here. Does your salvation come through Moses and the law? Does your promise of a new heavens and a new earth come because you keep the law of Moses? Here's Jesus Christ over here. He's not Moses. He's your saviour. God's promise is in him. Does your whole life, including eternal life and a new heavens and a new earth and a resurrection body depend on Jesus Christ? So why Moses? Why the law? What's he doing over here? What's his purpose? What's his function? And I had some interesting looks this morning when I preached at eight because I said, how about we get a microphone and go around the room because you're all professing to be very traditional Lutherans, but I would really like to know, do you know the function and purpose of the law? Because if you don't know why the law was given, then it's going to harm you. Who were to give their child a hot iron? You wouldn't, would you? If you gave your child a hot iron and they didn't know what to do with it, what would it do to them? It would burn them. And Noel Jew in his commentary says, if you don't know why the law was given, then it will kill you. It will harm you. It will hurt you. So the law was added 
not to make us better, but to make us worse. How are we going now? Who knows that that was the reason why the law was given? It was not given to make you better, but to make you worse. Isn't that interesting? Very often we think law is given what? To shape us and to grow us and to make us better. No, the law of Moses was given to actually define sin, to tell you exactly what sin is. Now, we're about to have a workshop today. If we didn't have the law, we wouldn't know what was right or wrong, would we? So, we thank God for the law because it does a special work. And let me say something here. Um, A few weeks ago, I met with another pastor and we were talking, we're both going through Galatians and and we said, we we speak very boldly against self-righteousness and he said, yeah, I agree. I said, but as soon as you start to speak about things like drunkenness or if you talk about adultery or you talk about gossiping or you start to actually name certain sins, I said, did you ever find out people become really angry with you? Yep. Why? Why do people become angry when you start to define things according to the law? Because that law that says you shall not do that, if you're doing it, what's going to happen? You're going to be furious that the law has actually told you not to sleep around. Is the law bad? No. It's good, it's holy. So when the law says don't do it and you're doing it, you get exposed and sin flares up in you and you get angry, especially the person who's preaching. He becomes the brunt of the anger. Why does he become the brunt of the anger? Because he's drawing attention to it through God's word. So I've had people come and say to me, don't preach any law, we just want gospel. Well, you know what you have to do? You have to get Galatians chapter 3, rip it out of the Bible. And you actually can't preach the gospel because there is no gospel without sin, is there? But people today want to leave church just feeling good about themselves. Well, that doesn't last. My goodness, if you just want to feel good about yourself, what does that tell you? It tells you that there's something wrong. You need something deeper than just feeling good about yourself and that's what the law does. So in Romans 5.20 it says that the law came in to increase the trespass. So what I want you guys to do now is don't think about chocolate and some of you don't think about coffee. Don't think about chocolate and don't think about coffee. What are you thinking about? (laughs) <laughs> and, and, and that's what the Lord does it, it says don't do it and you go and do it so love your brother and love your sister in Jesus Christ is only possible because of Jesus Christ you can't love another brother or another sister outside of Jesus Christ you can only ever hate now Martin Luther says this the law cannot do anything except with its light. It, it illuminates the conscience for sin, death and judgment and the hate and wrath of God. 
Before law comes, I am smug and I do not worry about sin. But when the law comes, it shows me sin, death and hell. Is that good? Wouldn't you rather be shown sin, death and hell than go there? So the law is doing something good, even though it is pointing out things that are bad, it's doing something really, really good. Surely this is not what it is to be justified. It is being sentenced, being made an enemy of God, being condemned to death and hell. Therefore, the principal purpose of the law in theology is not to make men better, but to make them worse. That is, it shows their sin so that by the recognition of sin, they may be humbled. Is being humbled good? You're not sure. Is being humbled good? Yes. Is being frightened of sin good? Is being torn down and worn down by sin good? And then Luther says, its purpose is to make us long for grace and for the blessed offspring. So the law has a purpose, it has a function and it has a goal. Now I need to say a word. If you're a good person here this morning. The law hasn't done its work on you. There aren't any good people. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin. From the time of Adam and the fall of Adam, the whole human race has been in bondage to sin. Luther says that before, outside of Christ, there is nothing but sin. You have to be bold to say that, don't you? Imagine saying that on the Today Show. Excuse me, I just want to let you know, outside of Jesus Christ, there's nothing but sin, law and curse. Try saying it in church. Try getting out the front door. You can't anymore. But then again, Amos wasn't real popular either. Or Jesus. See, before faith came, and you've got to hear that clearly, before you came to faith, you were held captive under the law. But isn't it beautiful that faith has come? Isn't it beautiful that when faith came, Christ came to you? And isn't it beautiful that when Christ came to you and faith came to you, you knew something about your sin. Isn't that good? And isn't it good that when you knew something about your sin, you knew why Christ came? And you could say, Ah, oh, Jesus Christ, you're my saviour. I trust in you. So that's what the law does. It brings us to faith in Christ. And Paul says, so that we may be justified by faith, that is declared innocent and righteous before God. And then he says, we're no longer under the pedagogos. We're actually no longer under the law. Why does he say that? Because last week I was in a phone call with somebody and I said the wrong thing in the phone call. You wouldn't believe that I sinned, would you? 
mean, you don't look like you guys don't look like you've done anything wrong all week. But after I had sinned, my conscience started to kind of go like that to me, and the law started to come down on me, and I was starting to think, oh. Why did I say that? How come I did that? And I wanted to, has anybody ever wanted to go back and take it back and say, oh, I wish I didn't do it? But am I under the law? No, I, I have been justified by faith in Christ. So although I was feeling condemned, I had to say to myself, no, I am a man who has been justified and forgiven in Jesus Christ. And did the conscience, did the conscience leave me alone? No, it kind of nagged me. It still nagged me. But I was able by faith to say, no, Jesus Christ, you are my, you are my righteousness. Now Luther says something really important. The law does wound us. Some of you I know have been wounded. Some of you have come to healing. When I got converted, I got converted through deep, dark depression. In fact, it was suicidal depression. Uh, The law was doing its work on me in such a way that I actually did not want to live. I mean, I literally did not want to live. Blessed be the law. Because it brought me to a place where I was ready to hear the gospel. But Luther says there can be a problem with us. The problem can be this. The law does show us our wounds and it wounds us. And he says, if you only ever look at your wounds, the only thing you'll see is what? Your wounds. It's a very important word. If all you're doing is looking at your wounds, that's what you will see. What is the purpose of your wounding by the law? to see that Christ himself was wounded for you, that your wounds are taken up into his wounds and he has made you whole and he has made you complete. So don't look at your wounds. Look away to him who was wounded for you. That's the purpose of being wounded. In fact, Christ has swallowed up death, the law and the devil and by faith he becomes your inheritance. He takes everything, please hear this, every pain, jottle, sin, guilt, shame, wrath, condemnation of the law, he takes it all for you and he gives you himself and he robes you in his beautiful humanity and he clothes you with himself. Why would you have one when you can have the other? Now, a very old and wise Christian pastor wrote several books on people who had been wounded and he said, I never have understood the mystery of why some of them find security in their wounds. There is a morbidity where you can say, I have been wounded and you kind of stay there. Christ does not want you to stay there. I wound, says the Lord, and I heal. Hear the inheritance of your salvation in Christ. 
For as many as you were baptised into Christ, who's been baptised into Christ? Christ is yours and your inheritance is the Father and all of that comes through the Holy Spirit and you've been clothed with Christ. So in this congregation and in the congregation of the whole entire church in Jesus Christ, there is neither Jew or Gentile, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, I'm just going to close on this point. When he says there is neither male nor female, well, I'm looking at females today. And I'm looking at some special ones and I'm looking at some special males. Because in Jesus Christ, a woman becomes a real woman. She doesn't lose her femininity. You're about to do a course on that, aren't you, in the women's retreat. In Christ, a woman becomes a real woman. Her identity is not abolished, but it is transformed into being a daughter of the Father, into a royal child of the Father, and a man becomes a true man. And we could say an Australian becomes a true Australian and learns what it is to have godly barbecues. Our culture gets redeemed. We use this nation, or we use not this nation, but we use this nation's goods and its culture for the glory of God, don't we? So our identities actually reach their fulfilment through baptism and I think what happens is, brothers and sisters, is we take some time to learn to live in the new creation. Like I said last week, you get saved by grace in a moment but it takes a long time to learn to live that way. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.